0: Thank you, Ken. If you have your Bibles, keep them open to John chapter 19. If you're not there with us yet, um, grab a blue one and be there. We want you to see uh, this morning and every morning that what we uh, proclaim around here isn't our opinion that comes straight from the Word of God. I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer this morning before we get started. God, I'm thankful for each person who's in this room this morning. I'm thankful that you uh, brought them here, Lord, that they're not here by accident, but you have your own distinct purposes for them being here. And so, Lord, now as we open this word, as we uh, speak to these people, it is your word. These are your people, God. And so we pray you just have your way in our midst, uh, that we will be humble and submissive and surrender to what you have for us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's not hard to see that something is terribly wrong, is it? I mean, everywhere that we turn, the evidence is right in our face. I mean, think with me. It used to be in this country that in order to put yourself at risk, you'd have to do something stupid or dangerous. But now, people are getting killed for having the audacity to go to school or a concert or a movie. Every day that I come to work, I drive past a cemetery with countless grave sites marking the end of someone's life. You cannot go to Riley Hospital for Children in Indianapolis without being struck by how full the parking garages And I did say garages are. It feels, I don't know if you watch the news, but it feels as if creation itself is waging war on us. Earthquakes are happening at higher magnitudes. Hurricanes come, category 5, category 4, category 5. and unseen levels, tornadoes and fires and droughts and famines. And and more and more we feel uh, this strain in our human relationships. Divorce rates remain just at at an unbelievable level, leaving lifetimes of pain for broken families. We have ever-increasing division among political lines. We, We simply, as a people, lost the ability to have a respectable conversation with someone we disagree with. We just can't do it anymore. There are endless examples of oppression in our world. There's systematic and individual racism abounds. This world is coded in injustice. And you know what the most foolish part of it all is? In our response to this, we know something is wrong and we keep returning to our woefully insufficient solutions that aren't solutions at all. Many of us search for an answer within ourselves, right? We're going to read more. We're going to study more. We're going to exercise more. We're going to diet more. We're going to build up walls around ourselves, protect ourselves, prepare for our environment. We're going to shield me and my own from this. And, and if we could ever have been the solution, we would have been able to prevent these things from happening in the first place. Others of us turn to religion or we run to religious ceremonies thinking that if we appease an an angry God, and we're going to turn his favor back on us. That if we just have enough faith, we can claim health and wealth. And that is a lie. Others of us try to ignore this. We just put our head down and go through our life thinking, if we don't think about it, if we we don't reflect on it, then it won't come to us. When eventually the darkness makes its way to our door. You see, we've come to the point in the book of John when it seems like Darkness is one At the end of John 19 The chapter ends And death rules the day Evil stands victorious And what is left in its wake Is despair and panic and fear and hiding Have you ever, have you ever been there? Have you ever just been consumed by grief? Have you ever just been exhausted From your suffering? you ever been racked with doubts and questions? you ever been confused about What in the world is God doing have you ever want, been worn out in despair? Of course you have. Because you live in this world. And, and if you have been there, then you'll be identified with those that we find at the end of John 19. And the question that we want to lay before you today is, is what if there was a solution to all of this? Right? What, if, what if there were actually an answer to every single drop of human suffering? What if there was a right coming for every wrong? What if there was a hope that nothing could take away? And I mean nothing can take away. And what if it was right there Right in the midst of the darkness I want us to not just understand the darkness that envelops the story in John But I want us to see that the answer is right there And it's right there for us too So let's look look again at those verses that Ken read for us John 19 verse 38 John tells us later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus But secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden... And then in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now I don't, I don't want you to miss the language at the end of the chapter. Pilate is going to, or, or Joseph is going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus. He's not asking for Jesus. Jesus Christ is dead. There's no, there's no doubting that, there's no denying it, it was a horribly brutal death. And, and the verses prior to this, the ones that Adam covered last week, the Jewish leaders want this bloody mess of these crucifixions cleaned up because the Passover is coming. And in that religious feast, they can't be around a dead body. And so the Roman soldiers go to the two criminals on both sides of Jesus and they break their legs. The idea being when you cannot push up off your legs on the cross and you can't breathe, and so that, that kills you almost immediately. But they come to Jesus and they don't need to do it. Because he's already dead. You see, he suffered worse than them. He, he absorbed the bloody beating of the flogging. He, he, he had to carry his own cross. There was, the fluid had already gathered around his heart and in his lungs. He, he felt the weight of the world's sin and, a, and his father's wrath. And for good measure, just for good measure, they thrust a spear in his side just to make sure he was dead. So you must know that this is not a comatose Jesus. This is not somebody who's passed out from pain or sleeping. Joseph and Nicodemus, at the end of John 19, are carrying the dead, lifeless body of Jesus. And they put him in a tomb and they seal him in darkness because he's dead. And what has seemingly died with him is the hopes of all his followers. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. What what if you were a person who'd been in Jerusalem just a few days earlier and you saw that triumphal entry... That here is this Jesus, this son of David, this Messiah. He's the one that you've waited on, not just you, but all of your people have waited on. He's the one who's gonna restore hope to your life and restore hope to your nation. What now? What are you gonna hope in now? What if you'd been one of the scores who would listen to him teach? And, and for the first time, he's the first to offer you grace. He's the first to speak hope to you in the name of God. He's the first to says there can be forgiveness for your past mistakes. He's, he's the first ray of light in this despicable world, and he knew, and you knew that it's with him, as long as he was around, somehow with Jesus, it was always going to be okay. Well, how's it going to be okay now? What's your answer now? Or what if you're one of the remaining disciples? And you had left everything to follow this man. And you left everything because you believed not only that he was the Messiah, but that he was actually the Son of God. And your heart burned within you every single time he spoke. And with him, the only thing you were certain of is that your future knew no bounds. You had no idea where he was going to take you, but you could not wait to see it. But well, what now? What the heck are you supposed to do with your life now? And you see... You can see in the end of John and the other Gospels, this loss of hope that results the way it always does in human beings. It's just in chaos. We're told in the other Gospels, the disciples have what they're doing at this moment. is they, They're hiding themselves in a room and they're locking all the doors because they're terrified. The Jewish leaders came for Jesus. How long do they come for them? So fear and panic have overtaken them. Doubt and confusion are winning the day because none of this makes any sense. It just doesn't line up. Then you have Joseph and Nicodemus. Joseph was a a member of the ruling council. He he didn't agree with this decision they made. So he wants to honor Jesus, but he can't do it out in the open. He has to act in secret. He has to, to do everything that he does, coded in fear. And so he slides up to Pilate and secretly asks for the body of Jesus. And with him is Nicodemus. You remember him back in John 3? He was already afraid back then. Coming in the middle of the night so no one would know. Imagine how terrified he is now. But he wants to help Joseph, and there's just one problem. They simply don't have any time. Because they're not just bound by fear. They're still trapped and bound by religion. And so they cannot touch a dead person on the Sabbath. And so they have to rush this entire thing. So they take Jesus' body to a tomb. And the reason they took it there is just because it was close. That's the only reason. And the Jewish custom is this, that, that they were to anoint the body with oil. And then they were to cover it with spices like myrrh and aloes. Only they don't have time to anoint the body. There's just not enough time. And so they just put on the spices and wrap it in cloths of linen, And, and because the Passover is starting, so they, the Son of God gets a rushed, secretive, fear-laden burial. How's that for a funeral for the Son of God? And then his tomb is sealed. And his body is left there in the darkness and the nothingness of the grave. Yet in the darkness of the tomb, there's a ray of hope. And the hope is this. That this was the plan all along. You see, Jesus was on a rescue mission. He came, he came because darkness wins. Right? He came because the sins of humans have unleashed a torrent of suffering and pain and despair in his creation. And he was coming to win everything back, to make everything right again. He was coming to win us back to God. And so in that plane, there was nowhere that he would not go to save us. There was nothing that he would not experience. There was no amount of suffering that he would not endure to save us from sin. He became our sin. To save us from death, he experienced our death. To lift us out of the grave, he went to the deepest, darkest places of his own grave. And we, most of us this morning, we know the story, don't we? We we know that on Friday, Jesus suffered and he died. We know that on Sunday, he rose from the dead, shedding the finality of death like it was a coat that you could take off. And many of us know this story. We know this timeline. We remember Friday every year and Good Friday. We celebrate Sunday every year on Easter. But what we spend less time talking about is this. That you and I, we live in Saturday. See, Saturday is the forgotten day. Saturday is the one that's sandwiched between the two most significant events in eternity. Saturday is the day where evil was rejoicing. Saturday is the day that it seemed like goodness had lost. Saturday is the day where, where grief was abounding. Saturday day is the day where mourning was everywhere. Saturday was marked by the hurt and confusion and pain that our lives are often marked by on this earth. Because in the timeline of eternity, we live in Saturday. When we think about it, God created this place, and when he created it, it was absolutely perfect. But then human beings sinned, and they marred that perfect creation. And that unleashed this torrent of horrendous consequences of which we are still feeling the effects of today. But in response to that, God sends his son, Jesus, to pay the price for our sins, to make everything right again, to reconcile everything back to him, and Jesus paid our price in full on the cross. It's finished. It's done. Yet we await our resurrection. Those who believe in Christ have the hope that what Jesus bought for us on the cross is a resurrection to an eternal life that is beyond what we've ever experienced here. 2 Corinthians 5 puts it forward this way. It says, For if we know, for we know that if the earthly tent that's your body, if the earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. At the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, paints for us this picture. This is also written by John. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. That is the hope that all who believe in Jesus Christ have. There is a day coming when every right will be made wrong. There's a day coming when every aspect of of creation will be reconciled to God. There's a day coming when cancer and heart disease and all of the sicknesses just don't have a say anymore. A day when there'll be no more pain and no more loss and no more separation and all of it is made possible in Jesus and by Jesus. But that day is not Saturday. Because on Saturday you feel your body betray you as you age. On Saturday you receive a terrifying diagnosis and don't know how much of a future you have on this planet. On Saturday, you can lose your job unexpectedly, not knowing what the future holds. On Saturday, you can be abandoned by your spouse or betrayed by someone you love. On Saturday, you can do the things that you regret and and, and, and push those closest to you away from you. Saturday, you can be trapped in addiction, stuck in a sin that owns you. And Saturday, you can pray again and again and again and again for a loved one and still watch them slip away and wonder, what in the world was all that for, God? On Saturday, you can take a step that you believe God is calling you to take, only to have it not work out and actually blow up in your face and hurt those around you. On Saturday, you can look around and genuinely wonder, where are you, Lord? Will you hide your face from me forever? Will you not come to my aid? Those aren't random questions. Those are direct quotes from people in Scripture, asking God those. So what is the answer for Saturday? What is the answer for this life, right now, the life that Jesus promised us, that we would have many troubles. He didn't hide from it. Well, Many times we're told that, that our answer is off in the future. That the answer is the resurrection we've already talked about. It's the eternal life guaranteed for us by Jesus. And the argument is this, that that future hope should be great enough to sustain us now. And man, I really don't want to downplay the immensity of that hope this morning. Because sometimes it really does feel like that's all we've got left. And I can tell you, it it definitely is more than enough. But in looking for an answer to our Saturday, I don't want us to just look forward this morning. I want us to also look back. Because there's something that occurred in John 19 that's incredibly important, and we, we simply cannot miss it. So look at John 19, back in verse 28. tells us later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled Jesus said I'm thirsty a jar of wine vinegar was there so they soaked a sponge in it they put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus lips when he had received the drink Jesus said it is finished with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit this is the moment of his death This is not some theological idea of sacrificing on behalf of others. It's not the the concept of of being a substitutionary sacrifice. This is the moment of his suffering and his death. This is the end. It is real. And twice in the midst of that, John mentions this massive idea. Verse 28 tells us that Jesus knew that everything was now finished. And then in verse 30, he tells anyone who will listen, it is finished. And if we don't Look at that closely enough. We're going to miss out on what he's actually saying. Earlier in in his ministry, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God, and he shares this parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all its seeds, when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and actually becomes a tree, so the birds come and perch in its branches." See, most of the times that Jesus was teaching, he was talking about how he's establishing God's kingdom. And what he was saying there in Matthew 13 is, it's going to look small. It's not going to look like what you think. It's not going to look like what you would expect it to look like. Because when you put a mustard seed in your hand, it is so tiny that it's almost invisible to the naked eye. But he says, don't, don't be fooled. What I'm doing is I'm putting the seed in the ground. And once the seed's in the ground, well, man, it's game over. It's game over. Because at that point, it's just a matter of time. If you you go through, if you make your journey through the Bible, God's kingdom at no point looks looks like what we would expect it to look like. In the Old Testament, he chooses a people for himself, the people of Israel, and you would think that this would be a really smooth relationship. They would be so grateful for it, yet they constantly rebel against him and reject him. In the New Testament, he comes as a, God comes to earth as a newborn baby a helpless baby in a nothing town and there's not even room in an inn for him 30 years later when he starts his earthly ministry he chooses a bunch of young uneducated men who had the ability to influence no one to be his disciples from there he never travels outside a region one twelfth the size of michigan in this tiny region as he as he teaches as he ministers he makes more enemies than he does true friends He's rejected by his own people, he's betrayed by one of his disciples, he's denied by another, and he's abandoned by almost all the rest. Then he's beaten within an inch of his life, he's punched and spit upon, he has nails driven into his body, he's hoisted up naked on a cross to absorb shame alongside suffering. And when the moment comes that his enemies had longed for, the moment that that hell itself believed that it was orchestrating, that all looked lost, that all hope was seemingly crushed, Jesus asks for a drink because he has something to say that he wants everyone to hear. And he's going to address those who are indifferent to his suffering. He's going to address those who are cheering it on. And he's going to address those who are devastated by it. And his message to all of them is the same. It is finished. It's done. Right? It's, it's over. And what he's saying is it doesn't, it doesn't matter what it looks like in the moment. Circumstances and appearances are irrelevant. I'm telling you it's over. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 picks up on this idea. Verse 22 tells us that, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That is what Jesus knew. He knew that he'd fulfilled the law. He knew that he'd absorbed God the Father's wrath for sin. And so what he knew is that the reign of darkness was over. It was finished. Because here's what happens next. He's going to give up his spirit. He's going to die. And then he'll raise from the dead, defeating his power and becoming what, what Paul describes for us there as the first fruit. Now this is an Old Testament idea. See, when it came time for the harvest, the farmers were to bring the very first portion of the harvest, the very first fruit, and they were to lay it on the altar before the Lord, and the declaration was that the rest of the harvest, God, belongs to you. And what the the Bible is telling you is that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit. He he was laying himself on the altar and saying, God, everyone who comes after me, all who resurrected after me, they all belong to you. Because Jesus is the first resurrection. But his is just the beginning. He will then resurrect all who believe in him. And then Jesus will destroy every dominion, every power, every authority that's contrary to God. And the last enemy we're told he will destroy is death and then he will reign forever having having removed the power of sin and death from his people for all time and at the moment the single moment where such a future looked the most impossible jesus raised his head and said i still know you might think i've lost you might think you've won but nothing could be further from the truth it's done it's already finished and there's nothing you can do about it jesus told the world that it was finished and the reason he could is because he knew he wasn't finished he was just getting started and this changes everything for us. Yes, we're living in Saturday. I get that. Yes, troubles and, and death and illness and suffering and more, they await us, but our story is not finished. He's not done writing your story. He's not done working in your life. And everything that happens to you, he's using to weave together your story that ends in redemption, your story that ends in peace, your story that ends in joy and ends in hope and ends in victory. Man, we live in Saturday, but Sunday is coming. And that shouldn't just give us something to look forward to. That should change our Saturday. So what is it that we should do? How is it that we should live in response to these amazing truths? There's a couple things I want to hand you this morning. Number one, you must trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Or else none of what I've talked about applies to you. See, Jesus Christ gives you a hope that nothing can take away. Jesus Christ took your place on the cross and paid your price, and he's the only one who did that. So he's the only one who can save you. He's the only one who can give you this hope. And so separate from him, without him, your suffering is absolutely pointless. Because there is no hope for you. Without him, there, there's no victory awaiting you. Right? It's just angst and turmoil and trying to get little mean advantages over one another. And eventually your body fails you and you spend an eternity in hell separate from him. And it's all pointless. But Jesus Christ went to the grave. He tasted death. He experienced hell himself so that you wouldn't have to. So believe in him today. Pray and accept accept him right right now where you sit. If you don't know what that looks like, let us us show you how before you leave this building this morning. Secondly, if you've done that, then then the call this morning is for you to have the faith that Jesus did. Jesus says in John 16, in this world you will have many troubles. It's not a secret. Then he says, take heart because I've overcome the world. Man, you live in Saturday, and on Saturday there are things that will happen to you that you'll never know why. You'll never understand why. They're unexplainable, hurtful things that that you would never choose them, and they still come your way. And while facing those things, you can embrace bitterness. You can. You've got that option. You can give up. You can sink in despair. You can demand answers. You can claim that God's unfair to you, or you can choose faith. And you can choose hope and you can choose life and you can choose trust and to choose that I want you to look at the faith of Jesus on the cross him saying it's finished is him saying I know what this looks like it looks bad and trust me it feels worse But what I'm telling you is it's finished that what God said will happen will happen the Bible in Hebrews 11 lists what we call the hall of fame of faith. It's just a whole story, a whole list of, of Old Testament heroes who, who the Bible is claiming they live by faith. And, and it's not this big heroic thing they did. You know what they did? They just believed God when he said he would do something. And Hebrews 11 points out that they all believed it, even if it didn't happen in their lifetime. They went to their grave believing if God said this was going to happen, it's going to happen. And so faith is just moving forward. Faith is... Is moving forward when it hurts. Faith is moving forward when it makes no sense. Faith is moving forward believing that God cannot lie. So he's going to do what he said he was going to do. And you can walk in that victory even while in the darkest times of life. Which brings us to the third thing. The third thing you do in response is, is you simply worship and praise God. One of the single most effective ways to push back the darkness is by praising God in the midst of the storm. Find things to be thankful for They're there They're there, I promise you Look to the cross When your God tasted death and suffering on your behalf Cling to those promises that he's going to work this out for your good because his word tells us to. Somehow, even if you can't see it, cling to the promises that his peace will guard your hearts and mind, even if it doesn't make any sense. Cling to the reality that he will never leave you and never forsake you, that he's with you now, offering himself, and then praise him, and praise his name, and praise his salvation, and praise his grace, praise everything he's done for you, and let everything that's in you praise the Lord. You see, I don't want you to sit around and wait for eternity I want you to live in light of it. We're called to live in in the truth of it. Sunday is coming, and that that changes our Saturday. In light of that, our troubles, and they're real, but they can be seen as momentary and fleeting. Because that's what the Bible calls them, and that's what they really are. Our sufferings can have purpose if viewed in the light of the eternity that Jesus bought for us in the cross. We can, we can use them to glorify his name and build his kingdom. And though our Saturdays are marked by death and pain and loss and confusion and illness and suffering. And yes, self-inflicted wounds and more. It need not result in despair or loss of hope or depression or bitterness. Because we can rightly see all of these torments for what they are. They are the desperate stabs of a dying kingdom of darkness whose fate has already been sealed on the cross. Because our power, our travels have no power over us, they simply do not get the last say. They don't. Not in Jesus' kingdom. That it is finished means that Jesus has an answer for our Saturday. That it is finished means that our resurrection is coming and it will be glorious. But in the meantime, right now, in this moment, we can still stand in victory. We can still stand with strength. We can still cling to hope. We can still serve and suffer with purpose. We can still see life in the face of death. We can still have the peace and comfort that only he gives. I want you to know this morning, these, these aren't empty words. Sometimes I th- it's, it's nice to come and hear encouraging words, but think, man, he, he doesn't even know what I'm experiencing. He doesn't even know what I'm, t- what I'm going through. Surely he doesn't even know what he's talking about. Well, at the risk of making this at all about me, I, w- I want to share with you a story this morning. Back in April, I got a call from one of my best friends. So I'd like to meet you at a park with my wife. That was weird. Guys don't really meet at parks, you know. So I thought, I thought, man, this is probably something bad. And so I go and find him and we meet and he tells me I've got cancer. Okay. I said, oh, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. I don't, I don't know what kind of cancer you have yet. I don't know what's going on, but I know my God is bigger than this. And so we're going to pray right now. That that whatever, you, whatever the diagnosis is going to be, it's going to be best case scenario. Right, best case scenario is lymphoma. Worst case scenario is pancreatic cancer. And so we prayed. We prayed right there. No pancreatic cancer. No pancreatic. Make it be lymphoma. We claimed it in the power of Jesus' name. Called me a week later asked me to come over. It's pancreatic cancer. Okay. So we researched it, and then there are multiple types of pancreatic cancer, and, and there's one that the prognosis is way better, and there's one that the prognosis is way worse. I said, so that's it. Eric, we're going to pray. We're going to pray right now. And so we prayed for the one that was way better. Called on, on God to work on this man's behalf. Just, just do this. Just give him the one that's better. Got the diagnosis back. It was not only the worst case. It was the most rare, the most aggressive, and the least treatable. Okay, well, I still believe God's bigger than this, right? And so I went over again, and, and we, we sought after the Lord, and we prayed that, that he would be that rare 0.03%, right? Because 99.97, it doesn't sound great, but there is still a 0.03%. Make, make him the 0.03, God. Do this, and, and we'll, we'll tell the story, We'll talk about how, how you, you brought this miracle. And so he started chemo and went through three rounds of chemo. And we went in for this big PET scan and we prayed, let, it, let, this, let the tumor shrink, let it be smaller. And it came back, the chemo isn't working, the tumor's not smaller. So then we heard of this, uh, tr- this clinical trial in Nashville all right, Lord, that's it. That's the one now. We're going we're gonna to pray for this clinical trial because maybe they've, they've got something that no one else has thought of yet. There, there's going to be a cure here. And so we prayed for the clinical trial and his health declined to the point that he couldn't even make the trip. So then I thought, okay, the stage is set, God. There's absolutely no one else who can get credit for this. Chemo won't get credit. Doctors won't get credit. Clinical trials won't get credit. This will be a work of you. Let let my friend Eric stand on the stage in five years and tell the masterful story of how you saved his life. We're going to call on the Lord for this. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And so then I felt the conviction. You know what? I've There's this passage in James. that says, you, you have not because you ask not. And we've got this really group of dev- this devoted followers of Jesus that meet on Wednesday nights here. And it seems like every time that group prays for something, Something happens. And so I finally said, I told I them told the whole story and said, you, I'm asking you all to just begin to pray for a miracle. Just that God would do this, right? And so they all, they just linked arms and prayed for Eric. Prayed that, that God would take this cancer away. Over the next week, I got multiple texts from those people, how, how they're appealing to God on behalf of Eric. And I thought, okay, it's coming. The good news is coming. It right? didn't come. And so eventually I made a turn. I said, you know what, God, just, just don't make him suffer. If, if you're not going to do this, just could you not make it miserable? And then it got miserable. And I said, all right, God, if, 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 if you're going to make him suffer physically, at least let him be mentally cognizant. And then his brain left him. And then last night at 2 a.m., he lost his battle to cancer. And so when I stand before you and tell you that we live in Saturday, I, I'm aware of it. And I stand before you and tell you that you can pray again and again and again and again for loved one and, and feel like you're talking to a wall. Yeah. I've been talking to a wall for about six months now. And if you think for a second that, that I'm not angry, or that I haven't asked a ton of questions, then you're you're kidding yourself because I'm angry. And I've asked a lot of questions But I still stand before you today And tell you it's finished It's finished because Back in May he gave his life to Jesus Christ In his living room It's finished because he stood before all of you In the baptism waters in June And told you how, he'd, how Jesus had saved him It's finished because cancer does not get the last say Not at all story's not over And so yeah I'd I got questions, I got doubts, but man, I'm telling you, at the the darkest moment of eternity, Jesus picked his head up and said, it's not done. I'm not done, it's done. The kingdom of darkness is done. I'm just beginning my work, and so at some point in the near future, I'm going to stand before Eric's family and share that hope and say, it's finished. Cancer doesn't get a win, it doesn't it didn't win last night it won't win in the future it just can't win it can't stand a chance against jesus so whatever whatever you're going through whatever you're facing just know just know it's finished beyond a shadow of a doubt it's finished and the reason it is is because he's not he's just getting started let's pray Father, I thank you that in the the darkest moment of our entire existence, Jesus could pick his head up with all the confidence in the world and know that he wins. He could pick his head up with all the confidence in the world and know that that the kingdom of darkness has no say. They've already been defeated. Whatever they're throwing at us now, they're just desperate attempts to still stay relevant. But their fate is sealed. So, Lord, I pray for the one in our midst this morning who simply does not know you, who still, according to your word, still belongs to that kingdom of darkness. They are in the losing camp. Lord, I pray that they would would see and believe and experience the victory that Jesus Christ bought for them on the cross that they would know that, that he is the realest thing in all of eternity and that he is their only hope and that right now where they're sitting, they would say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. I invite you in. Save my soul. Forgive me my sins. Take over my life because I want that to be my future. God, for the rest of us, may we, in spite of what comes our way, may we know that you're, you're not scared off by our anger you're not scared off by our doubts or confusion you're not scared off by our questions but eventually Lord what is left is we need to have the faith that Jesus had if you were to look up in the dark and say no no they don't win it's finished and then we need to have the strength to stand in your peace and praise and worship your name and we get a chance to do that right now this morning so may the worship of you, may the praise of your name envelop this room at this time as we declare once and for all that it's well with us because you win. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.